0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast
1: where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No
0: spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about the campaign to minimize the events of January 6th and the tribalization in our politics, we have with us today Charlie Sykes, founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Charlie Sykes, you are editor of The Bulwark, which is a relatively new online platform. And you're going to help us today get to the truth of the matter about what's going on in culture and politics and policy surrounding the Republican Party. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be with you. So tell us our listeners
1: who might not know, what is The Bulwark? Well, The Bulwark initially began as kind of a a temporary successor publication to The Weekly Standard, which was killed in late 2019, a conservative magazine that was insufficiently anti-Trump. So the core digital staff of The Weekly Standard needed a home, and we founded The Bulwark, which I would say would be a a center-right publication that certainly has been, I think it's fair to say, Trump-skeptical.
0: Right, and the kind of people that you have writing at the Bulwark is people like Amanda Carpenter, Bill Crystal, Mona Charen. So you've got some really big names putting putting out content for the Bulwark. Is that right?
1: Well, we do and of course there's you know Jonathan Last who is the uh, editor in chief and Tim Miller who used to be the chief spokesman for the RNC also some center left writers like the novelist Richard North Patterson have uh, have contributed to it so we've really been been pleased not just at the audience that we've been able to attract but but also the sorts of people that want to write for us because i think that they recognize us as a journal that that appeals to kind of a broad swath of centrist non-tribal news consumers.
0: Yeah, that's my impression, too. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that, to me, it's got the kind of influence that the Weekly Standard had and more because it's now fully digital and it's in the digital age. And the Weekly Standard was, was associated with kind of the old guard of publishing. Now you've got
1: something new and fresh. Well, we are in this remarkable era where you can start these publications without the huge overhead costs. So, yes, uh, we are fully digital and we're also branching out into various other venues. We, of course, I have a daily podcast. We have other multiple podcasts and as well as as newsletters. So I you know, try to think that we're testing the boundaries of, of the new media these days. Any plans for television or video or anything like that? You know, we talk about it. I think there's gonna be a video component. We do a once a week live stream, but I'm not sure that people really, really want to see our faces. Most of <laughs> us have most of us have faces for radio or for writing.
0: Oh, I don't know about that, but thanks for uh telling us what's going on with the bulwark. I, I wanna get into a little bit with you about what's going on recently. There seems to be a campaign to minimize the events of January 6th, to muddy the waters. And this this seems to be coming from you know people on the right, people in the Republican Party.
1: Where do you think this is coming from? I'm glad you brought this up because it is really extraordinary to watch it in real time. It has been two months since this extraordinary moment where we saw this attack on the Capitol in order to stop the certification of the Electoral College vote. I mean, this is something that historians are going to be writing about for years. And yet, two months out... We see the denialists and the people who are minimizing it. My home state Senator Ron Johnson saying, well, it wasn't that bad, an armed insurrection. It was people who were out for a walk, other people who have advanced uh, alternative stories that have been debunked, but which are still out there, that it was Antifa. And I think that what you're seeing is that the further you get away from the event, the more efforts there are to downplay it, drop it in the memory hole. Or distort what really happened. And in many ways, that's certainly a marker of our time. It's the, I think I, in my newsletter, I, I describe the, the clinical term as the plasticity of delusion. That, you know, once you have a delusion, that it can take many, many shapes. But one would have thought that what happened on January 6th was so shocking that it would have shocked even the tribal partisans back to reality. And it seemed to for a moment. I mean, you notice that, that there was kind of a mini Arab Spring. Yeah. Where you had you not only had Liz Cheney, but you also had Mitch McConnell. You had members of the Trump cabinet who were resigning. Other Republicans were saying this is awful. You
0: had Lindsey Graham say, you know, you know, I'm I'm done. It was a hell of a ride, but I'm done.
1: Yeah. And that lasted until he got yelled at in an airport. And they've all come scurrying back. Uh, That's sort of the, the set point. But this is, again, one of the most disturbing, one of the most significant assaults on our constitutional order that that you and I have seen in our lifetime. And what we've just experienced was the first time that in this country we did not have a peaceful transfer of power. And yet two months out, it's like it didn't happen, at least in the minds of many Republicans and the right wing media ecosystem.
0: So, you know, this was astonishing to me. There was a a January poll by AEI, the center-right think tank, that found that half of Republicans agreed with the assessment that Antifa was responsible for January 6th. And only 15 percent of the Republicans in this survey blamed Donald Trump. I mean, that's just pretty astonishing. And the Washington Post-ABC News
1: poll had some similar findings. No, I think any of the polls are going to find that sort of thing. And this is the alternative reality universe that we live in, that we actually have 40% or more of the country that not just lives in a bubble, or we used to call an echo chamber. I mean, it's an alternative reality silo. And this is a huge challenge. It's not, not a media problem. This is a real challenge going forward, whether or not democracy can continue to exist in a world in which we don't have a shared set of truths or facts.
0: So where do you think this is coming from, Charlie? I mean, it, it just, it defies belief when you have smart people, thoughtful people who clearly saw all the evidence right in front of us. We've never seen video evidence like this before. And, you know, by all accounts, Antifa wasn't involved in this. No. So where where is this where is this denialism, where is this campaign to minimize these events coming from?
1: Well, I will admit to you that as somebody who has written about this and, and thought about this a lot for the last four or five years, there's still an element that I I find incredibly astonishing and, and mysterious. Because as you point out, there's the evidence of your eyes, the plain evidence that you've seen in front of you, the overwhelming evidence that's coming out as there are arrests and charges, the testimony of of the people who were arrested, make it absolutely clear what happened, what their motivation was, how violent it was, how shocking it was. And yet you do have this denialism. And I think that this is the power of motivated reasoning and the power of tribalism you know one of the explanations that i that i've read about this you know comes from the world of social psychology not of politics and the argument you can find it in Jonathan Haidt's outstanding book you know we may think that the human mind is designed as a rational thing to determine what is true and what is false well in fact the way it is evolved is that the mind is designed to strengthen our bonds to our tribe and that If we want to believe something, we only need one data point. If we want to not believe something that is inconvenient for us to believe, we only need one thing in order to hang that rejection on. And I think that we're seeing this that the polarization and the tribalization is so intense. It is so bound up in personal identity that even when you have an undeniable reality like the events of January 6th, there are these cognitive processes which allow people or attract people to the denialist. Now, I mean, obviously, there's also the entrepreneurial, cynical, political element, which is that you have news outlets. You have uh, talk radio, Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, which are deeply invested in downplaying what happened on January 6th or playing the game of whataboutism. You know, what I've noticed m- more recently is the attempt to say, well, yes, that may have been bad, but let's now talk about what happened when they burned a Starbucks or attacked a federal building in Portland, or what about the attack on the White House? Or or what about Mr. Potato Head more recently? It's, it's funny you mentioned that, because I just finished a podcast where I started saying it's March 4th, and we are in the midst of a pandemic that has killed a half million Americans, and our political-cultural debate is tied up with Dr. Seuss and the gender of Mr. Potato Head, that this is a country that is talking about, does Mr. Potato Head have a penis at a time when we are faced with these massive social, cultural, political problems? And I think that's an indication of also what's happened to us. I find all this completely mystifying, too.
0: And I don't understand how, you know, parts of the media are so siloed That one side of the media is talking about Dr. Susan, Mr. Potato Head, and the other side is talking about COVID and passing COVID relief and things going on with Syria and, you know, things going on in Myanmar, on and on. Why is there such a gulf in what Americans are consuming in terms of their news?
1: Well, first, that gulf is getting wider, and I think it's going to continue getting wider because of the various incentives. And I think it is interesting the way that the Republican Party, in particular in conservatism, which once really did wrestle with some of the policy decisions. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans told themselves they were the party of ideas, when it came to welfare reform, when it came to dependency, all of these things. And now it's all culture war all the time. And, you know, one of the weird things about the the era that we've just passed through is that some of the old ideological issues, the divisions have... Actually, narrowed. There's not a passionate debate uh, over spending because both parties spend lots of money. I mean, they differ around the edges. There's not a passionate uh, disagreement about, there's a disagreement, but not a passionate disagreement about, for example, the minimum wage. It's more of a like, should it be $10? It should be $15. So, as some of those traditional policy differences have gotten closer together, what you see is the greater investment in the culture war as a way of ginning up the base, as a way of fomenting this identity politics that, that we have right here. But we live in a, in a very unserious time, despite the fact that we have very, very serious problems right in front of us. So everybody wants to blame the media, and this comes from both sides. Is it the media's
0: fault that our political culture can't seem to reach across the aisle and compromise on, on just about anything?
1: There's a lot of responsibility there. I mean, ultimately, this is a, a citizen problem, a people problem. The fact that we have a system that relies on responsible, informed, honorable citizens. And if citizens shirk that responsibility, then, then the system falls apart. But in terms of the media, I you know recently there was a lot of discussion about what was the legacy of Rush Limbaugh. And I had been in conservative talk radio for more than two decades. So I've given a lot of thought to this as, as well. But I think that what one of the things that Rush Limbaugh represented, along with Fox News and others, is the way that the entertainment wing of the right has come to dominate conservative politics. That there was a one time maybe there was a, an establishment, there was a mainstream, there was the congressional party, there were the policy think tanks. And right now, what is driving the conversation is the entertainment wing. The people who will go for the lowest hanging fruit, the most emotional hot takes. And I think that explains a lot of the kinds of things that we're talking about, like, you know, the Mr. Potato Head. That's the lowest hanging fruit for a Fox News anchor or a Newsmax anchor because it's code for these people are out to get you. These people do not share your value. You should not think of these people as people with whom you disagree. You need to think of them as your enemies.
0: It's a very different way of thinking about news in general. It's more infotainment than actual
1: news, right? Yeah. I mean, Neil Postman wrote about this decades ago, but we're living through it. Now, is 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 that an excuse for the politicians that knuckle under to it? Is that an excuse for the people who abandon principle? Uh, not necessarily, but it is an explanation for why, for example, so few Republicans are willing to follow the logic of their own reactions to say January 6th. I mean, you saw them, you know, how many of them you know, put their toe in the water of saying this is outrageous, this is wrong, this is not who we are. Liz Cheney said the Republicans need to make it absolutely clear that we are not the party of white supremacy and anti-Semitism. And then she looked over her shoulder and found out that she was out there on, on an iceberg by herself, that nobody else was willing to do that because that wouldn't play well in this infotainment ecosystem that, that we're living under now.
0: So where does that leave the Republican Party? I mean, you've said and written this that this is Donald Trump's party,
1: but worse. What what do you mean by that? Well, over the last four years, we found out that the Republican Party was willing to embrace so many of the Trumpian dog whistles about race and uh, look the other way for corruption, et cetera. Well, now uh, in in the wake of January sixth, they're clearly willing to also accept the big lie about the election, the sedition caucuses' attempt to overturn an election. And the attack on the Capitol as sort of no big deal. So we, just when you thought we could not go any lower, I think that we we have because you look at this. You look at the the president on the CPAC stage, and he is he's made it a litmus test for the Republican Party that they have to believe that the 2020 election was illegitimate. They have to challenge that. They have to buy into all of that. They have to avert their eyes from his attempts not just to mislead the public, but to use his office to overturn a free, fair, secure election. In any other context, this would be breathtaking. And yet you saw the extent to which he succeeded in getting the party to follow that line at CPAC. So
0: has the GOP's extremist wing really taken over the party? Or as Ron Brownstein's
1: put it, is it too big to fail? No, I think Iran is absolutely right, right there. Are a majority of Republicans extremists themselves? No, but they're willing to make peace with it they are willing to say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to condemn the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Uh, I'm going to look the other way over the Lauren Bobbitts. Yes, the Proud Boys may be embarrassing t- to me, but they have become too significant a part of our constituency. And this is something that I, I, mean, I sort of remember the process. The conservative movement has always been sort of a motley crew, a coalition of everybody from your country club Republicans, your corporate chamber of commerce Republicans. There were the anti-communist advocates. There were the Christian right people. There were the libertarians. And they all sort of coexisted uncomfortably. And then there were always the total whack jobs, the people from the fever swamps. And you kind of knew they were there. Yeah, like but the David you, Dukes. You'd look the other way. Well, David duke you, you couldn't really look the other way. But you know, yeah. it was sort of like the drunk at the end of the bar, your crazy uncle, that, that sort of thing. I've always I I've started describing them as kind of they were the recessive gene on the right. And you kind of always assumed that, okay, they would vote for you, but the center would hold. Well, that's no longer the case. And I think that this this policy of toleration, you're seeing then, I think uh, Ron Brownstein is describing it, is that these extremist groups, including the people who are willing to use violence, even the white nationalist organizations, have now become too important a part of the constituency for Republicans to safely denounce, when in fact, this is exactly what they should do. And, and and there is a long tradition of this, and I know it's almost a cliche now, but William F. Buckley Jr., who was, no, no one questions his conservative credentials, in the 1960s, said, if we're ever going to be taken seriously as a movement, we need to engage in ideological hygiene. We need to expel the Klansmen, the anti-Semites, the John Birchers. We need to push them out. This is an ongoing project. I no longer see the Republican Party capable of doing that or willing to do that now. So, but...
0: I guess this begs the question, are they normalizing this kind of behavior? And is that part of this, you know, campaign that we've seen to minimize the events of January 6th? I mean, are they normalizing extremist behavior?
1: Yes, I think they are. And I think they would deny that. I think that they would push back very hard on that. But I, I wrote a piece just recently about leaving aside the behavior just for a second. There's a publication called American Greatness, which is put out by the folks from the Claremont Institute. And lots of prominent conservatives write for it. They have published these overtly racist articles. I mean, not gray areas at all. And it was one of those moments where you say, okay, are you, people going to tolerate this? Will you? Is this, is this who you want to be aligned with? And the reaction to that was nothing. So Paul Gosar, congressman from Arizona, Goes down to CPAC, misses the vote on the on the COVID package because of the health emergency, but was really down in Orlando. He's a speaker at CPAC. The night before his speech at CPAC, he goes and he speaks to an overtly white nationalist group. This is a group of white racists who make no bones about it. He has to sort of apologize. He doesn't he doesn't really apologize. He basically says, I don't support racism. But there's no reaction to it. There's no censure. If you criticize Trump, you will be exiled and excommunicated. If you ally yourself with white nationalists or groups like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters, there are literally no consequences in the Republican Party. So however you define the word normalize, this is a de facto normalization of their behavior. What Republican has been censured or denounced by the Republican Party for their alliances with any of the organizations that attack the Capitol. So uh, again, if you voted against Donald Trump, you are cast into outer darkness. But if you have associations with white nationalists or even Holocaust deniers, there are no consequences. That strikes me as normalization.
0: And do you think we're going to see more officials elected with the support of these kinds of people and then maybe, you know, continue carrying these people's agendas onto the floor of of the United States Congress?
1: Well, I think it's certainly possible. I will tell you that the change over the last four years has been breathtaking to me because I remember back in 2016, I was never Trump from the very beginning. But I remember thinking and having conversations with, with people in the Republican Party about the fact that, well, there are, you know, there's Donald Trump, but there are no Trumpists out there. There's not a lot of imitators. And that has changed so dramatically. But again, this has becomes Trump's party, but worse. Who would have expected that you would have vocal supporters of QAnon elected to the House of Representatives? Who would have predicted right. that you that you would have a freshman class that would include people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert? These are people that any healthy political party would say... We want nothing to do with you, but they are there. So in a primary right now, and I have to be honest with you, if there was a QAnon supporter versus a never Trump Republican, I think the odds would overwhelmingly favor the QAnon supporter in the modern Republican Party getting that nomination and going on to be elected. So in the absence of any significant mainstream Republican pushback against those folks, you will get more of it. And why do you believe the Republican Party is willing to accept this?
0: Just because there's no other way to win? Is that simply why the Republican Party? Because this isn't the Republican Party that you or me grew up with at all.
1: Boy, it's it's such, it's such a good
0: question.
1: You know, a lot of it is is cowardice. A lot of it is just the lust for power it is a sort of a nihilism. We don't believe in anything, but if you're going to vote for us, we're going to be with you. I mean, that's where a Mitch McConnell comes down to. It is this sort of reactionary nihilism, which is we're against everything the left has, and we're willing to accept everything, but we actually don't believe in anything. So we're willing to make these compromises. But I also think, you know, to use some overused cliches, there's been that boiling frog syndrome. You know, if you would have asked Republicans a few years ago, would you tolerate You know, the white nationalists and the Holocaust deniers, they would have said, absolutely not. There's no question about it. And they could point to a long history of rejecting them. But gradually, 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 they have made their peace with it. And I also think this raises the troubling questions because I spent many, many years pushing back against the idea that conservatives were racist. I said it was exaggerated, it was unfair. it's a way of basically trying to just shut down and simplify political debates. It was stereotyping conservatives it was very much stereotyping conservatives and 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 by the way, it also numbed people to the charge. I think there was a certain crying wolf that it it you know, has has made conservatives not not react strongly to being called racist, but you look back on you look back on it now and you go, you may not have been racist, but you are clearly. Willing to tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know that that was inevitable. I do think there was there was an alternative path, because my experience is that people are not one way or the other way; that they're complicated. There's a mixture. That if you appeal to their better natures and you say you don't want to be that, you know, this is not who we are. I think you know a lot of a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans would have joined in rejecting that. I mean, there was a line of conservative thought from Jack Kemp through people like Paul Ryan that would have had a much different approach to issues of race. But now you see where we're at, and it is not a pretty picture. It it sure isn't.
0: I I mean, I look at this, and you can even take certain policies, for instance. So most of the Republican Party is solidly pro-Israel, for instance. Yes, And yet, the Republican Party seems to be now, or a majority of these folks seem to be willing to tolerate some level of anti-Semitism within the party, you know, in order to do what? I, I I don't get it. That's one contradiction that that's right out there that's obvious. It doesn't make sense.
1: No, there's a lot of this stuff where if you try to track the linear thought, you're going to be very, very confused. Like It's like sentences that won't scan. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is that some of the support for Israel comes from, you know, Christian evangelicals that have their own agenda with, with Israel. But Mm -hmm. I was, I was always struck by that because, uh, you know, Donald Trump himself has flirted with anti Semites despite the fact that his own daughter and son-in-law are Jewish. He's got Jewish grandkids. And so, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And the support for, for Israel is, is rock solid in Trump world. And yet there is that. That sort of dog whistle out there that they're willing to play because again, maybe that constituency that believes in conspiracy theories that believes that George Soros and the Rothschilds and you know the Jewish bankers are pulling the strings, maybe that constituency is too large to reject or ignore mm. well, is there any
0: hope or any optimism you know for the center to come back and hold, for instance, you know Liz cheney's really smart, prominent person. Kinzinger, same thing. You know, you've got a few people in the Senate, you know, Mitt Romney. You've got a few Democrats in the Senate who are real centrists, you know, new ones even. Mark Kelly, Kristen Sinema. You know,
1: you've got Joe Manchin there. What's the hope here? Is there hope? Well, I hope there's hope. You know the difference between hope and optimism. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> optimism is just thinking things are going to get better and better. You know, hope is the belief that if you struggle and keep striving, that things might, might get better. I do believe that there's a fundamental decency in the American public that is not ideological. That most Americans are just not, are exhausted by much of this. And, and I do think that there's a potential for a coalition of the decent. Although I think it's going to be much more difficult to achieve than we would have hoped. You know, I think Joe Biden, when he ran talking about the soul of the nation, talking about unity, was saying exactly the right thing. But I'm not sure that he fully understood the extent to which American politics has been has been changed. And I would also hope that people would understand that people like Liz Cheney and Adam Ginziger are still quite conservative. And actually, I I did a podcast with Adam yesterday. And I said to him, "I said you're enjoying this strange new respect, but you know what's about to happen to you, don't you? Is that the folks on the left who love you right now are going to be shocked to find out that you, as a conservative, are still a conservative?" Yeah, and so, that's right. <laughs> and I think part of it is, is is how we conceive of our politics, and I've talked about it in terms of the horizontal axis, which is the traditional left versus right, and that maybe the real challenge of our time is the vertical axis of belief in truth, the rule of law, the Constitution, and things where I think there's more common ground than if we focus on, are you a, you know, progressive or a, you know, free market conservative? I I think a lot of those issues are not as important as preserving democracy and living in a world that has a shared reality. What do you think President Biden needs to do?
0: You know, obviously, you know, he said that he wants a coalition of the decent that he wants to bring America back together. He campaigned on it. What does he really need to do?
1: Well, I think he needs to keep doing that. And I think he's got good intentions. And I think that his chief of staff, Ron Klain, has good intentions. But I, I will tell you what I was thinking this morning. And 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 this could be misunderstood because I really do think that many of the never Trump Republicans need to be open to cooperating and working with Biden Democrats on shared values. That doesn't mean becoming Democrats, it means working with people you agree with about these fundamental issues. So I favor that. Having said that, I must say that I'm am a little disturbed by the fact that we just had a series of major pieces of legislation that have passed without a single Republican vote. Now, either that's a symbol of the fact that the Republicans are completely recalcitrant, completely rejecting cooperation, or it's an indication that there was not really a sincere effort to reach out to moderate republicans on issues like including police reform, election reform, the covid relief package. It's hard for me to believe there's not one republican in America who they could find that would support these major initiatives that are going through congress right now. Because if in fact the republican party there's a civil war is splintered that there are people who are willing to make common cause, why hasn't that happened so far on these issues? I'm thinking about the HR1 which has a lot of good things but a lot of problems, the COVID relief bill again, good things mm-hmm. but a lot of problems. So is is that actually happening in the real world? Because if we are going to go through two years where everything is going to pass on the narrowest of partisan lines, I don't see that we're going to get out of this this rut we're in. Wow,
0: lots to think about here. Charlie, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about tribalization, coalitions of the decent, and all that we talked about today, a lot to think about, and hope to have you back sometime really soon. Hey, great
1: conversation. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.